This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss it's the ancients on history hit i'm tristan hughes your host and in today's episode well you've probably been thinking quite a lot about the roman empire recently perhaps more than usual well let's keep that going because today We're talking all about gladiators in Roman Britain. There is a brand new exhibition that has opened at Colchester Castle Museum, which explores our current evidence for gladiators in this part of the Roman Empire. And a few weeks back, I headed up to the museum to interview its lead curator of this exhibition, Glyn Davis. Now, in this episode, we focus in particular on one striking artefact, a massive beaker known as the Colchester Vase. And it's full of striking details, one of the finest pieces of pottery from Roman Britain. One of the scenes, the main scene, depicts two gladiators fighting. We even have their names surviving. So could these gladiators be actual fighters who battled in the arena at Roman Colchester? Well, you're going to find out in today's episode. Now, of course, we explore various details of this vase, and if you'd like a visual aid to see this vase as we're chatting, well, you're in luck, because we filmed this interview and it's already been released on the History Hit YouTube channel, so you can see the vase there as we're discussing it. I really do hope you enjoy, and here's Glyn. Glyn, welcome back. It's great to have you on History Hit. It's great to be back here at Colchester Castle. Welcome to the Games. Well, I mean, absolutely. We're at the entrance of your new exhibition, all about gladiators in Britain. Now, when someone mentions gladiators, we may well think straight away of Italy and the heart of the Roman Empire, or maybe even North Africa because of films like, well, Russell Crowe and Gladiator. But even on this far-flung frontier of the Roman Empire, there is evidence of gladiator fights happening. Absolutely, yeah. Here we are, fringe of empire, that gets used a lot. But yeah, absolutely. Gladiators and the spectacular, where we get the modern name spectacle from, were deeply ingrained in Roman culture. So it's not surprising, really. Where the Romans are, you'll find, I suppose, 
elements of spectacular and the idea of gladiators fighting in arenas, yeah. And what types of evidence do we have from the archaeological record for this evidence of gladiators in Roman Britain? In some ways, there's a lot of avenues of evidence, but it's all very sparse. So we could look to the venues themselves to do have amphitheatres in Britain, although not all gladiator battles had to take place in those venues. And we can look to the written record, of which there is nothing. We can look to the epigraphic record, so the inscriptions. Again, very few things out there. So then we have to look to the people themselves. Do they leave behind elements of them as performers, so their arms and armour, as well as the people themselves? So do we find gladiators buried in Britain? And here we have a few, and in some cases, new pieces of evidence turning up. If you put it all together, you can take a lot as well of the artefacts from Britain, mosaics, wall paintings, etc. Gladiators are everywhere in art. But you need the context to be able to tell you, were they here? Were they battling in this arena? Were they real people? And there we have a bit of a problem. But we have enough, I think, to say, yeah, absolutely, there were gladiators in, in Roman Britain. So it seems like there's this mix of direct evidence, which the object can almost reveal that, yes, there were 100% gladiators in Britain. And then all of this indirect evidence, like the mosaics, that hints at that there was this idea of gladiators, that they were commonly being portrayed, for instance, as you say, on art. Absolutely, yeah. I think a good example is we have a fragment of a wall painting uh, from Colchester that it's a, very, it's a stock image almost of the gladiator in defeat. And so one gladiator fighting another, he, he raises his finger in submission. And I think this is still the only fragment of wall plaster from Britain that depicts an arena scene like that. That piece of evidence comes from a, probably a wealthy house in Colchester. But that doesn't, that's indirect evidence. It doesn't mean gladiators were here. It just simply means the owner of that house, I suppose, wanted to say they were keyed into Roman culture. And what's interesting about that fresco, that painting, is it's a stock image. You'll see, I think, recently at Pompeii, they revealed a very similar wall fresco there. So these things, yeah, they're certainly indirect pieces of evidence sometimes. And you mentioned, of course, so we are in Colchester. And Colchester, back in Roman times, was this almost a hub, a centre of Roman culture. Yeah, absolutely. We say it here, you know, Colchester, it kicks off as one of the most important cities, if you like, in Roman Britain. And there's a reason for that. And actually, this plays into the idea of why gladiators may have been here. And that's because it would have been the home to the imperial cult. So if you like, this is the worship of the emperor themselves, a symbol of Rome. And indeed, on their deaths, they are deified. So it's, it's worshipping the spirit, if you like, of the emperor in that sense as well. So it's incredibly important. It's an incredibly important religious centre and the imperial cult were across all the provinces, syncing up back with Rome. What's interesting in terms of looking to gladiators and evidence is that the imperial cult, one of their duties was to put on a munera, so that's what we call gladiator fights. That's an interesting word as well, because it means obligation or gift. And I suppose that's what they are. They're being put on in honour of the emperor, if you like, for the emperor, as well as in his name, for the people. And it's to celebrate him. And they had a duty. They were bound by that. So they were one of the main sponsors of the games, and they would have happened here. So we can imagine these munera, these blood sports, including the gladiatorial spectacles, happening in a place like Roman Colchester. Some well, I guess almost 2,000 years ago now, and it seems that you found some incredible artefacts from this area of Britain too, to kind of back that up. Perhaps most famously, most extraordinarily of all, 
This pot, the original pot that we have in front of us today, Glyn, what is this? This lovely pot is known as the Colchester Vase, and it was excavated to the west of the city, where one of the cemetery areas was of Colchester, and it's been on display in the museum. I think it had a trip to London once at the request of Mortimer Wheeler, famous archaeologist, but it's pretty much been on display here. And I sometimes call it the gladiator pot because what we have on here is a, is a depiction of arena scenes and we can talk through them. Well, let's talk through them. Let's focus in because the detail, the first thing when you have a look at this pot is the staggering amount of detail. All of the outside of this pot is covered in various either animals or human figures. Absolutely. So we've got, got three scenes going on and you can read it like that. It's a really dynamic, piece of art if you want to look at it in that way. And I talk about these scenes because you can see these dotted lines going around and these divisions. If we look here at the front, we've got two, we could call them bestiarii, so the beast hunters, or another name is venators. So again, these types of beast hunters. And we have Mario here and Secundus, and they're baiting a bear. We know that because we also have this rather enigmatic inscription running all the way around the rim, which names the individuals. And that's not completely unique to Roman art. We get a lot of mosaics sometimes of the names of the combatants and even the names of animals sometimes. Sadly, we don't know, know the name of the bear here. So we have Mario and Secundus, and they're tormenting this poor bear very briefly. Then we move on to the, the main event, and we have Memnon, the secutor. Yes, so he's very yes. distinctive this huge helmet, encasing helmet on his head, his large shield, his sword, which he carries in his left hand. So this makes him a left-handed gladiator, giving him a bit of an advantage. And he is fighting, or he has just bested, Valentinus, who is a retiarius. And many people will know the retiarius is the, the fisherman, if you like. He's got his trident and his net. And he's actually dropped his trident. You can just see it at the base of the pot here. And he raises his, his digit, his finger up, he's submitting basically. So we have captured a moment in time here. And I suppose what we don't know is whether Memnon spares his life. In some ways that was always going to be down to the sponsor of the games, also the editor. The editor is the sponsor of the games and also the person who owns these gladiators, so the, the Lanista. And there's always some deals that need to be done there because if he takes the life of Valentinus, someone is owed some money and that's the trainer, that's the Lannister. And then lastly, to finish off, maybe this is a bit of filler actually. This is a really traditional scene on beakers like this, known as hunk cups. We've got a lovely scene. We've got hares or rabbits here being chased by dogs and there's a stag as well. And I do wonder, that's a really generic scene. And I wonder if this is a commissioned piece, which is what we think it is now, which we can talk about. This might just complete the pot, if you like. Well, before we go on to that, I'd like to examine, let's examine in detail each of these various scenes, these three scenes that you highlighted. If we start with this depiction of the beast hunt, of this bear and these two figures. Yeah. This is sometimes quite a horrific part of the infamous Munera that is overlooked compared to the gladiator spectacles themselves, that before the gladiators fought in the morning of one of these events, these people, they were the stars of the show. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. I think we, we don't really know what a, an average day at the games was like. We often look to the Colosseum and what's recorded about that. I think sometimes Marshall, the Roman poet is quoted who, who wrote a book called The Spectacles, but that is recording the, the opening, if you like, of the Colosseum. So it's extravagant and 
what in, in the provinces of Britain are never going to really be compared to the Colosseum. But we think there's a sort of a standard day, and you mentioned it. So to kick off, in the morning, you'd have the beast hunts, the, the venatio. And in some ways, I think you're right, it's almost more horrific than the numbers of gladiators coming through because animals could be slaughtered in their hundreds and indeed utterly thousands in Rome. At the Colosseum at the inauguration, I think in total, I think 9,000 beasts were slain. It's hard to think of that amount of bloodshed really, isn't it? It's horrific. It, it really is. I mean, if we focus therefore on what these venationes, these beast hunters are, are wielding, I mean, what are these particular, I guess, weapons or tools that they're holding? Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, and I've worked with a number of specialists on the vase, one including Nina Crummy, who's a well-known sort of Roman artefact specialist, and she's reanalyzed this with a really keen eye, and she's picked out some really interesting details. The fact is, firstly, the two bestiarii, if you want to call them that, the beast fighters, they're not dressed in the same way. You can see this chap over here, Mario, he's not got a lot on, he's got his little loincloth, and he's holding two sticks as well. So maybe he's not so much aiming to kill the bear, but I don't know, anger it, etc. And then we have, yeah, Secundus as well, and he's a little better armoured, and he's got this manica, so this piece of covering going up his arm, which may have been made of leather, and he's got a whip as well, and he's got some sort of shin guards as well. So they're not dressed in the same way, they're not armoured in the same way. And Nina suggests something really interesting, that you might think of this as a duo here at play, but maybe it's a trio. Maybe these two characters, these two people, work with the bear a lot, and we should be seeing the bear as a third part of this act, because it's hard to work out whether this is a traditional venatio where the bear is being hunted to be killed, or whether it's got a more of a flavour of, I don't know, a bit of performance here and, and theatrics. I suppose we won't know. We don't know the name of the bear, but interestingly at Colchester, we do have some of the best evidence for bear from the city. So there's several contexts from across the ancient city where bear bones have been discovered. It is a reality that bears could have been in an arena or a venue here, and indeed across Britain. It's probably, bears are probably the most terrifying beasts that would have been in the arenas of Britain. Well, were bears in Britain at that time or would they have been transported across from the continent to somewhere like here? Interestingly, we know actually I spoke of Marshall, he records Caledonian bears performing, if you want to use that word, being slaughtered, might be more accurate, in the Colosseum and its opening. So we know bears from Scotland are being transported over. But actually, we can talk about this in a little bit when we mention the inscription on the vase. If we look to Germany, I think around Xanten and the Rhineland area, I think uh, the military presence there, they're really operating at acquiring both people and animals for the arenas across sort of the, the Western Empire. So it may be actually that bears were coming straight from uh, Germany, which it may be the case of Valentinus as well. Right, well, before we get to Valentinus, one last question on this incredible detail we have on these particular figures. First off, like, to see the hair of these two people with the bear and, of course, all that band that you can see across his body and on his arms, his eyes, his nose. There's a real attention to detail there, isn't it? But I've also got to ask about the bear itself. I must admit, it doesn't really look like a bear. How can you tell that it is a bear? It looks a bit doggy, yes. doesn't it? <laughs> we have got some other hounds on the vase. There are several different depictions of bear, actually, and we do think that's what's on show here. He's a bit bigger. If you compare him to the canine here, it is quite a different beast. He's a lot larger, lengthy. The person making this may not have actually seen a bear themselves, so they're going off a description. I suppose we have to bear that in mind. 
Having said that, to counter-argue that, there is, if you, as you have said, a huge amount of detail that has gone into the barbotine decoration of this vessel. So barbotine is all the pipe work you see here that's created this relief. There's a huge amount of detail and a real familiarity with what these people are wearing, how they're dressed. And we do wonder if this, and we'll come on to this, if this is actually depicting a real event, you wonder if the potters themselves had seen the games or maybe were even in the audience. Potentially, at the spectacle that this commemorates. To get a sense of the size for our podcast listeners who are listening to this, it's about, well, I mean... It's, a, it's about 220 centimetres high. 220 <laughs> centimetres. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's about that. So it gives you a rough size. It's interesting you mentioned the size, actually, because technically this is what we would call a beaker. And when you think of a beaker, I normally think of something quite small, something you drink from. And I often recall this a super-sized beaker. And what's interesting is this can't really perform the same function as a small drinking cup filled with a liquid, say wine, watered down wine. This is incredibly heavy. If you're using that in a sort of convivial context, a bit of Roman dining, everyone with friends around showing this off, it's a huge thing to, to lift up and pass around. Plus there's almost absolutely no damage to this pot. There's a bit of damage that may have happened post excavation, but otherwise, this is almost pristine, so I can't see it being handed round. What is this? We call it a beaker, but it's huge. It's probably not handed round. I think most likely the Colchester vase is a commissioned piece. It's a memento of the games, and it has a second life as a cremation vessel. We did find human remains in here that have been analysed. Okay, go on. You can't leave us on a cliffhanger like that. Come on, tell us about these human remains. What did the analysis of them reveal? As part of the Decoding the Dead project, which you've, you were here chatting about before some time ago, and this is one of the cremations we analysed. An osteologist, Emily Carroll, analysed the cremation and we discovered that the person in here was a male and they're probably over 40 years at their time of death. They had a bit of, I think they, they had a bit of pathology going on, so they'd had a hardish life. Apart from that, we can't say a lot more. Other than, we also had their petrous bone analysed. So we have two petrous bones, they're in the ear, and we undertook isotope analysis on that. And that was uh, Professor Montgomery and her team at Durham University. And that worked out that this chap was not local to Colchester. So they may have come from some extreme parts of Britain, to the west or right to the north, up into Scotland, or indeed, they could have come from some other part of the empire. Unfortunately, cremations were in the early days of undertaking isotope analysis. And so what we really need to do is, is analyse something else like the lead. And hopefully that's in the pipeline and that will be able to help us pin down potentially where this person was born. But they certainly, we can say for sure, that they weren't born in anywhere near Colchester or what was Essex back in, in the Roman period. I'm guessing we're getting into the world of conjecture to kind of theorise then if that figure who was ultimately buried in here could have been a fighter in one of these arenas. Yeah, so the cremation was well preserved. And I think unlike nowadays where we go for a cremulator and it crushes us to dust essentially, back then you'd have token parts of the cremation taken from the pile and placed in the vessel. And I think we had over 50% of the, the body represented. And you have whole chunks, that's how we're able to determine biological sex, how we're able to determine age, etc., from diagnostic bones. But a little bit of pathology, but nothing to indicate did this person live the life of a gladiator in the arena. We didn't see any evidence of that. It was too hard to ascertain. Could they have been a gladiator? It's what we pose in the exhibition here to 
people. I suppose they could have been. I don't think so, though. I think whoever this person was, they had a really intimate connection with this vase, which was a commissioned piece at some great expense. And it depicts a very specific event. So they must have had some intimate connection. So maybe they could have been just some sort of uber fan, a fan of the games, or we could maybe extrapolate a little bit further, maybe even suggest maybe they were the editor of the game, so the sponsor of the games. Maybe that's a worthy thing to record on here. Not that gladiators couldn't get rich, but it's only a very few across time and space in the Roman period who earn a great deal of money. Most people, most gladiators, they are slaves and die as slaves, unfortunately. So yeah, I don't think so. That's my take on it though. So there really is that interesting contrast with gladiators in Roman society, whether it's in Britain or elsewhere in the empire. Yeah, they have a really contested identity. They can achieve this celebrity status, if you like, but I think that's so few and far between for people. For most gladiators, especially let's talk about Britain and the, and the provinces here, it's gonna be a really hard life. In some ways, gladiators, they're slaves, they're a commodity to their owner, like any slave would be. So they have to be cared for in a way if that owner, that Lannister, wants their money back, I suppose, if they want to make a business. But at the same time, many non-gladiators, almost or criminals, the Noxoi, were just, just went into the meat grinder, I suppose, or say the Colosseum, etc. So there was that, that, that waste of life and taking of life. And I think that was, most gladiators probably had a very hard life if they managed to survive the arena. Absolutely, well, let's move on therefore onto the gladiators that we have on this vase itself. I'm being very careful moving it. As you say, it's about 220 millimeters in height. So it's quite, quite small, but decorated, full of detail. This is scene two, as you were yeah. saying, and this is of that next part of the arena sport, which was the gladiatorial fights themselves. Absolutely. So we're on to the munus now, the gladiator fight, and the main event, which could have happened in the afternoon if you're looking at a, a traditional setup of the day. And yeah, here we have Memnon, a secutor, and it's inscribed above. Let's look at Memnon then. So what has Memnon got? He's a secutor, and they're really distinctive because they have this encasing helmet, if you like, with just the two eye holes. He has his very large shield. He's got padding on one arm. Might be padding, could be leather, could be metal, I suppose, as well. There's different variations on the armour and some coverings on his legs too. So he's quite a well-defended gladiator. However, he is also completely weighed down. And I don't know if you can imagine being in a, a metal helmet like that encases your head. If you think you've got to move around that sandy floor of the arena for maybe 15, that's how long we think maybe about would have lasted, fighting, technically, fighting for your life. You can imagine how hard it would be to breathe in that, how hot it's gonna be. So even though he's well protected, he's weighed down. And I think that's gonna be effort, that's hard work. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
me focus first on the helmet itself. Now that helmet gives me nightmares because <laughs> I can see the eye holes and also I believe I've worn a replica of that style of helmet up in York about a year or so ago. And it was the most uncomfortable helmet I've ever worn because it presses right up against your face. It's really difficult to walk around, to breathe, to even to talk in that helmet. So I guess that was one of the things, wasn't it? He's heavily armed, but actually the gear that he's got is not the most effective for fighting. Absolutely, and you make a really interesting point there because that helmet wasn't made for you. There's no reason to say these helmets, these weapons, the armaments were made for them. So maybe it's a helmet that slightly doesn't fit either. That's gonna be horrific. Did you wear a padding when you put that metal helmet on? Yeah, I mean, that, that would help soften it, wouldn't it? And actually, there's some amazing details on the vase, and here you can see some sort of little tassels coming out. So it may be that he had some sort of lining in there. I've tried one of these things on too, and they do cut into you. And if you're getting knocked about with a, a sword as well, yeah. And I've got to also ask about this one particular piece of decoration on his shield. I mean, that's a swastika. Absolutely, it is a swastika, which nowadays we very much associate as a, a symbol of hate but it is in fact a really ancient symbol, extending way back beyond the Roman period and, and in Italy to other places. But to Romans, this was an apotropaic symbol. So if you like, it warded off evil and it was protective. And therefore, no reason to be alarmed that it's on the shield of a gladiator. And in fact, many items of gladiatorial equipment could be decorated in this style with protective symbols which had all sorts of different meaning. It's not out of place here, although it does, I think, look quite odd to our, our modern eyes. It does, absolutely. Well, Memnon, he is looking towards the other gladiator in this scene. He's got his shield out front, he's got his small sword, about almost looks like he's about to deal a blow, doesn't it? Yep. Who is the object of his attack? Who is this other figure that we've got? Valentinus, I believe. Yep, so this is Valentinus, our Retiarius. He's been bested, and this is, a, as you say, the Memnon sword is raised, and we wonder what will happen. So the artist of the potter has captured this moment, maybe at the bequest of the person who's commissioned it. We'll never know what happened to Valentinus, the Retiaris. He's dropped his trident to the floor. He has this really interesting armour up his arm. We have the manneker again up to the gallerus, which is, it's almost like a shield for the, the shoulder. It's strapped on here, which he can hide behind. And I should say the Secutor and the Retiarius are really common pairing, and they're one of the favourite pairings, especially in the later Roman period. As we've discussed the way Memnon is dressed, the Retiarius Valentinus is quite different. He's, he can be quite speedy. He's not weighed down. He's only got a bit of armour on his shoulder. So he's got speed on his side. But he has got quite a weird weapon. He's got this trident and he's also got a net. We may even see a remnant here. That's what he might be holding. Very difficult to depict, but there might be a remnant of the net that he tries to ensnare his opponent in. So I think this is what the Romans liked about it, that what were these weird combinations, these pairings of fighters going to produce? You mentioned how restrictive some of this helmet is, etc. when you put on a replica. And this stuff wasn't designed to assist them and help them. Gladiator's armour, in a way, was designed to be theatrical. And again, this is the slip of this pot is a browny purplish colour. It's quite dark. But gladiators themselves would have sparkled in the sun in an arena. Their helmets golden or, or silver. The shields colourful with all these strange protective symbols on them. I think ostrich feathers coming out the side of the helmet, plumes of feathers. There's so much colour and glitz. I think there you go. There you see the spectacular. 
there you're seeing the performance. And none of that really aided the gladiator. It wasn't there to help them win the fight. And I guess another part of that performance was the names of the gladiators themselves, because they had stage names. These names that we have in front of us, they could be stage names. I suppose it could be, yeah. We certainly see that in other forms, other media, especially mosaics. Gladiators are named, they have stage names. Memnon here is a really interesting name. Memnon, for the Romans, was the mythical name of the king of the Ethiopians at that time, a mythical figure. And it may be that, you know, Memnon derives a stage name from that, this sort of uh, hero, if you like. Valentinus, that may be more a personal name. So yeah, they had these stage names. I don't know if they were picked by themselves or they naturally came about through their training and their fights, but it's interesting to know whether they actually own that name, that identity associated with their name as well. And we have their names, but we also have some other writing next to their names. What is this writing? So we have the word sort of sec here for Memnon, secutor, or sac, I suppose, is right. technically how it's spelt. And then we have vi, so nine. We'd normally write that as ix, but it's not uncommon for the Romans to spell that out in full, so to speak. So this is suggesting that Memnon has won nine fights. That's the interpretation. As I say, I work with a lot of specialists on this pot, got a team of specialists together, and Dr. John Pierce at King's College London, who, amongst many things, is an epigraphist, and he's reassessed the inscription here. And essentially the traditional interpretation, but this is suggesting that Memnon has won nine fights which sort of places him as a veteranus, so a veteran of the arena, someone who's got a few fights under their belt and kind of knows what they're doing. Now, unfortunately, Valentinus has no fights to his name. There's no record of that. So he might be a, a tyro, so an untested gladiator. And maybe that's why we see what we see here exactly, that he's been bested by Memnon. Now, interestingly, Next to Valentinus, the inscription finishes with Valentinu, so Valentinus, leg, legionis, XX. So that's referring to the 30th Legion. Nice. And that's where it's a bit enigmatic because you may know the 30th Legion was never stationed here in Britain. They were stationed in the Rhineland, actually at Xanten in Germany. And this has always puzzled people about the vase. It's why the vase was actually thought to be even potentially be a German product, because this style of vase also is being made out there as well. A famous academic, Jocelyn Toynbee, suggested that maybe Valentinus was attached to the 30th Legion, and we start to get, she's put about this idea that maybe the military had their own sort of gladiator troops in a way, which is a, it's an interesting idea. We think rather that these gladiators and this association with the legions just suggests that the military have a really important role in how they're acquiring people and especially animals for the arena. So we spoke of the bear earlier and we have inscriptions recording the military hunting and taking bears. I think one soldier's down as capturing 50 bears. And again, I think that what we see here is Valentinus as a nodal part of this huge network, especially over in the Rhineland of how the military operating to supply these venues. And if you think about it, you know, gladiators is really big business in the Roman world and you need a system like that and you need procurators too. So we know of a procurator who was in charge of, again, supplying people to the arenas of Britain and Germany. So it's, as I say, it's big business. And I think the, uh, this is just an association, if you like. Right, because it is interesting to kind of delve into that link. And as you say, it is an enigma, but to have the name, a Roman name, above this gladiator, this gladiator who's got his finger up 
almost looks like he's giving a rude gesture, but he is surrendering, isn't he? And then the name of a particular legion, when we always associate or normally associate gladiators with slaves yep. and names that aren't Roman, to have that there, that is really peculiar and interesting to think whether he was someone who went into debts and then tried to get out by becoming a gladiator and then having that link with the legion. All of these theories, there are so many theories must abound as you've highlighted there as to who this figure was and his association with that particular military unit. Absolutely, and as I said, it's enigmatic, it's unusual. We haven't cracked it in this new assessment of the vase, given our best interpretation of it. And that's what's interesting about it. It's why I find it fascinating to really examine singular objects like this to try and pull out these stories. You mentioned the name, we, we can see the figure on the vase. I suppose the really new piece of research that came out of the reassessment by the team, include John Pierce, Nina Crummy, and Joanna Bird, who's a ceramic specialist. So if you look really carefully, something suddenly jumped out at us, which is the fact that this inscription is down as being recorded post-firing. So you fired your pot, it is a ceramic, and then it's, if you like, scratched in or chipped in. And if you do that to ceramics that have a slip, so that's what this lovely colouring is, it's, it's a sort of a technical thing, it's what this final sort of application is, the slip will just chip, it will just ping away. And we've got lots of examples in the collection at Colchester that show that. But this is really finely done. And if you look carefully, the clincher are the X's. Legionis XXX. Can you see how one stroke overlays the other? Yeah which means that this can only be done in the wet clay. If you took a stick and ran it through wet clay yourself, it's the only way you can achieve this. That has to have been done when this initial thing was being created. Absolutely. So that completely changes the take on the vase. So instead of this just being a really nice pot with some gladiators on, someone comes across and goes, I like that. And oh, it reminds me of that time in the arena I saw Valentinus and Memnon. And I remember what happened. I'd scratch their names on. It doesn't mean that anymore. It means that someone has commissioned this pot from the potteries at Colchester. We know this is a Colchester product because we've analysed the clay. The DNA of clay, if you like, means that it was made here in Colchester. It's, got, it's a match for the London clay that's being used. So it's made here and it's been commissioned of a specific event. So now when we look at these figures on the vase, this is Valentinus. This is Memnon. Of course, we have all this all these artefacts from Roman Britain. We have lovely mosaics and things. Yes, we have all these amphitheatres, and we presume gladiator fights, etc., took place there. But we have no record of any real people or any real event. Well, we do now, and that's the Colchester Vars. So we argue that this is recording real people and a real spectacle, potentially, that happened here at Colchester. We mentioned indirect and direct evidence much earlier on in our chat, and it is so fascinating to think how that particular focus on that last bit of the inscription, looking at that minute detail to realise that it had been made when the original pot was being fired, when the original creation was being created on this pot, how that has changed it from indirect to direct evidence for gladiators in this area of the Roman Empire. This is huge when exploring this quite enigmatic story of gladiators on this far-flung corner of the empire. It's fascinating, isn't it? And then, and again, because we have so little evidence, it's just fantastic to have something like this. And this type of thing, this type of part, the form of inscription, isn't unusual elsewhere, 
So we have other examples of where this has been done, but it is unique to Britain. So it says something new about Britain and what's going on here. So now we know that Valentinus of the 30th Legions has probably traveled from Germany. It puts a different spin on our lovely bear who has no name, he's nameless, but maybe it suggests if this is a real event, the bear must have been there too. And as I say, we have other unique bits of evidence, a bit of zoological remains that suggest bears were here. So you start piecing it together. And I think it's very easy to, to see this really happening here. Now, obviously this vase is associated with burial and cremation now, the gladiator vase. It does beg the question, do we therefore have any other evidence for a tomb of gladiators or a gladiator burial in this area of Britain? I think that's, yeah, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? And it's funny that <clears throat> this has a second life as a cremation vessel, because it didn't start off like that. It was made as a memento of the games, and then it's reused, so we assume there's some intimate connection. But yeah, getting at that idea of where are the gladiators themselves, these people? I suppose there's, you may have heard of it, I'm sure, the really interesting cemetery near York, so Driftfield Terrace. It's in the cemetery area just outside York. They believe they found potentially a gladiator graveyard. I think that's a pretty good interpretation of the osteological remains they found there, the human remains, where you look at some of the facts, the demography, there's a lot of men there, okay? Not a lot of women or children at all. Those men are not elderly in some cases. When they looked at their bones, they could see they had a hard life, I think, but also there was some muscle to them, they were robust. And you start piecing this together. There's another aspect which is quite confusing in some ways, which is a lot of decapitation burials where the, the head, if you like, or what we are left with is the skull, obviously, but the head has been removed and either placed back with the body or, or elsewhere. So, you know, there are some other theories, are these criminals, etc. But I think overall, that's a pretty good interpretation of potentially what that cemetery is. One piece of evidence, which is really interesting, and I know they're still working on, is a pelvis bone from one of the skeletons, which clearly has bite marks of a large carnivore, which I think they believe could be a bear. I'd hope it's a bear. I'm obsessed with bears now, having looked at the Colchester vase so long, or potentially a big cat. And I think they're still working on this, doing some really interesting analysis of the bone. And hopefully, not too long, we'll find out what animal that was. But that's interesting too, because again, it's another piece in the puzzle of going, were well, the Venatios going on here? Did we have some of the impressive animals that the Colosseum did? I always assumed that we didn't, that bears would be maybe the most ferocious thing you'd find in a, an arena. But potentially if it's a big cat, that really, again, much like the Colchester vase and its reassessment, that would really put a different spin on what we think was going on in the arenas of Britain. It really bodes exciting for what's going to happen in the years ahead, doesn't it? I mean, you also mentioned there how, of course, first of all, this was probably a memento, almost a souvenir of games of spectacles happening in Roman Britain. Is this something we also need to associate with these Munera, with these spectacles, that the people watching on, they've got their favourite gladiators, that at the end of the day, they might purchase a particular type of souvenir to remember the event? Absolutely. I think there's, there's almost two levels to it. There are certainly the mementos, if you like, and we have other examples of objects like the Colchester vase, where they're inscribed with very specific events or specific performers or animals, etc. There's a few of those dotted throughout the empire. And those, I think, are your classic, absolutely a souvenir and a memento, something that is to recall something. It's supposed to 
make someone look at, say, let's take the vase in a, a setting where it's being shown off, is to respond and make people think of that event, elicit some memory. It's a mnemonic device in some ways. So I think there are some really special objects like that out there. And then we have the other level of what I like to think of as tat, as souvenir tat. And that stuff is just mass produced and everywhere. So these are the lamps that have gladiators on them or little battles and things. These are the amazing glass cups. We have one of these from Colchester, the little glass sports cup, we call them, that has gladiators all the way round. And these aren't really depicting specific events, but they're just evoking the arena and the combatants. And I think that it's that sort of stuff sells really well, doesn't it? Because I think people back then, they loved this. As I say, it was a really big part of, of Roman culture. Some objects, uh, it's also really interesting what gets decorated with even gladiators. So we have knife handles, for instance, and those are really practical little objects. But the gladiator was also a symbol. And I suppose you could invest some protective qualities, also almost some magic into some of these practical objects if you had a gladiator decorating it. One of my favourite objects relating to gladiators is a tiny amber pendant that was excavated from uh, the site of the Mifraim, the London Mifraim, which is now on display there at the London Mifraim Bloomberg space. It's absolutely tiny, about this big. What's that? Maybe 10 millimetres high. And it's an amber amulet of a gladiator's helmet, a mamillo. And it's beautiful, but at the same time, that was undoubtedly some sort of magical amulet. Amber had magical meaning to the Romans. They saw it as a protective material. And to shape that into a gladiator's helmet almost doubles down on that. It makes it more magical. And you can imagine someone, maybe even a child, wearing that device. So we talked about gladiators being symbols of their celebrities. They're also slaves. At the same time, I think we see it, their symbolism being used as, as protective devices. Yeah, they're really interesting, complicated figures. Is this a regular pose that we see gladiators depicted in in Roman Britain? In some ways, yes. This action pose, raised sword, etc. There's the famous Bigner mosaic with its little cupid gladiators. It is, and I suppose there's a reason for that, isn't it? It's to convey these people, these gladiators in fight, etc. We can see it here, the raised finger of Valentinus. This is also a really specific gesture, which is on a lot of Roman art in context of gladiators. The raised index finger, meaning submission. What's interesting is Memnon's there, almost poised. He's in action pose, but he was also frozen in time on this piece of ceramic. So he's, he's ready to go, but it's not his decision whether he makes that sort of final kill that's going to be down to the sponsor of the games the editor and of course they have backed it they've put all the money up and they will have have to have spoken to the trainer probably in advance the lanista who owns the gladiator because of course these gladiators are slaves and therefore they are his property so they need a prior agreement if you like otherwise there could be a lot of money swapping hands and indeed if the lanista has said that's fine yeah if you want him to go i suppose the sponsor could make that decision but then he's reacting to the crowd as well it's a really unique thing and then we obviously there's obviously other gestures involved we have the the turned thumb is the classic one as well thumbs up thumbs down so it's interesting how gestures come into play into to roman life well come on myth bust that that is something we always associate with gladiators because of famous movies and others that thumbs up means live thumbs down means die is that right 
I don't think anyone's been able to solve it, but one of the best articles I've read on it by an academic suggests the opposite, actually, that, that thumbs up, rather than thumbs up good, thumbs up is bad. So I suppose deaf to the gladiator and then thumbs down, good. And then even then thumb sideways might be a thing too. So I don't think it's definitively been proven, but they do bring in a huge number of sources, all these different literary texts and playing off other ideas where gestures and hand gestures are used in the ancient world. It's really interesting. It is really interesting, but once again highlights that point, isn't it? That the story of gladiators in the Roman Empire, although we so often associate them with the Roman Empire as being this ever-present part of it. It's still a really enigmatic part of the story because of the evidence that we have surviving. And yet, thanks to research by yourself and others on objects like this, we're learning more, for instance, of the presence of gladiators in Britain. And I've got to say, looking at the quality of the artwork all around this vase, surely it's got to be one of the most impressive, extraordinary vases that we have surviving from Roman Britain. I absolutely agree. I'm really lucky, I'm really privileged as a curator here to be able to get up close and personal like we are today a number of times. Joanna Bird, who's a specialist in ceramics, she's studied Samian pottery all her life. So that's the lovely red glossy tableware that's being produced in Gaul. She's looked to this and she says it's one of the best made, if not the best made pots in Roman Britain. Now, that's quite a statement to make, but she has been looking at this stuff for 40 or, or, or more years actually. And if you do get up close and personal, as, as we've been doing, you can see how well made it is. The barber team, which has to be piped on, if you like, that's incredibly difficult to do. But if you look at the artistry, I always think there's this huge dynamism to it. Here we have Mario lurching forwards. The bear is looking back as it jumps forward. The whip trails down of Secundus. He's moving this way. You can see here Memnon and Valentinus, everything's going on. There's all this power and movement which I think is phenomenal. And the more I look at it, the more I would stake a claim to say, yes, that we have one of the best made pots from Roman Britain. The devil really is in the detail, isn't it? Well, Glyn, this has been fantastic. This is one of the star objects, but not the only star object in your new exhibition, all about gladiators. Tell us all about it. Gladiators, a day at the games here at Colchester Castle. Really, we've responded to the ancient word uh, spectacular. So we wanted to make a spectacle of it. So if you look around and we've had a look here today, it's like a comic book almost popping to life. Lots of colour, larger than life figures. That was the influence on the design of this exhibition to try and make it feel like something really special, colourful, etc. Which is what a gladiatorial bout would have been in an arena. It's an imagined day at the games, so we're not saying this actually happened. The elephant in the room in some ways is where would have this happened in Colchester? Because we don't have an amphitheater. But as an imagined day, we can go through the stages of the day. So the morning beast hunts at midday, you could have executions. We have the governor here sitting as chief justice, meeting out executions to, to criminals. And then into the afternoon, the gladiator bout. So we follow this sort of traditional day at the games. Here we are outside the amphitheater and we have our market stalls. So over here, you can get your food and drink, get your snacks before you go in. And just over there, we spoke about souvenirs, all our souvenirs with price tags. So if you've got enough cash on you, so we're really riffing off that idea of you coming in and experiencing what it would have been like, if you like, a day at the Games. And in fact, we start downstairs, we kick off at the temple. Gladiator Games, in a way, were really political and highly religious events. 
and a really important aspect of them, and we've based it on the imperial cult, putting on these games for the emperor. So that's the premise, if you like, of the exhibition. And the imperial cult here would have paid for these. There would have been a sacrifice and ceremony at the temple, which is exactly where we are now, where the castle is today, would have been the Temple of Claudius, and here the imperial cult would have operated from. And the idea is from there, you would go in the procession known as the Pompa, all the way to the amphitheatre, which is behind us. Well, it is quite a spectacle in itself. And Glyn, it just goes to me to say, thank you so much for inviting me here to see this exhibition, and a pleasure to have you back on History Hit. Oh, you're welcome, thank you very much. Well, there you go. There was Glyn Davis talking all things gladiators in Roman Britain. I hope you enjoyed the episode today and keep thinking about the Roman Empire. Now, last things from me. First of all, it's your last chance to vote for us at the People's Signal Awards. You can do that by clicking a link in the description below. Please vote for us in our Achilles episode. Don't vote for Dan, I beg you. We would love to be able to bring this award home to Ancients HQ. Other than that, you know what I'm going to say. If you have been enjoying The Ancients recently and you want to help us out, well, you can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. It really helps us as we continue to grow the podcast and to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. We've got a bumper couple of months ahead for you folks, so stay tuned. We've got some really strong stuff to end the year on, but you'll find that out in the coming weeks. That's enough from me, and I'll see you in the next episode. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.